You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is On Principle, Challenges in Jewish Education. I'm Aprom Kivalevich, and I have the great honor uh, to be here today with Professor Rabbi Chaim Simon, uh, Professor of Law. Actually, he holds the chair in Jewish Law at Villanova University, which is a Catholic school, and this is the law school of Villanova University where he teaches. Um, he is quite an accomplished scholar uh, in insurance law and private law, but as our discussion and our program is about Jewish studies, he also teaches specifically Jewish law there as well, and I'm not sure if this is called a recent publication. Within the last two years, he published a what I consider a very unique a personal, and many people agree, is a very important book of scholarship entitled Halacha, the Rabbinic Idea of Law, which was published at Princeton University Press. Uh, professor Seyman has served as the gross visiting professor of Talmudic Law at both Harvard Law School and the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Uh, he sits uh, quite effectively as a rabbinical court judge and Dayan with the Beth Din or Bezdin of America, which happens to be where, uh, although I had heard of his reputation, it's where we first personally met. And uh, Chaim, uh, Professor Seyman, thank you so much uh, for being with us uh, and this program. Uh, you are actually the first guest that we've had that is a teacher of what I, we would call higher education, uh, meaning in a college level. Uh, you're also teaching actually beyond that and it's the graduate school level and beyond that you are the first teacher that is that we've interviewed here that actually teaches uh, a a, a Jewish studies to anyone who elects to take your course and that would be of course it's open to anyone who's in the university that would be Jew non-Jew man woman and anyone so in that case this is a very important you're a very important guest for us because this is an area we have not yet dealt with. So thanks for being here. Sure. Thank you so much. Thank you for that uh, warm introduction. Uh, it was great meeting you uh, on the Bezden, and uh, it's great being here. Yeah. Well, uh, unlike the Bezden, where we were, so we were sort of uh, uh, list grilling others, uh, you allow me to sort of start <laughs> grilling you a little bit. Um, and, and, really? and, and it's, it, and again, I, Look, I would love to have received a, a teaching position at a university. And when I was at one time considering that, one of the questions that came up, and I'm going to pose that question straight to you. You are teaching Jewish law. And I know you, and I've, I know from the book, the parts of the book that I've read, that you teach, you teach it accurately. This isn't some sort of watered-down version. So you are actually teaching Torah to the people in, in, in your classroom. First of all, let's deal with the issue of, 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 of teaching Torah uh, to anyone, including non-Jews. Um, did that ever, was that ever an issue for you? Or did you ever have to think, I guess the second question is, that there might be parts of this Torah that perhaps wouldn't work so well and that you'd have to censor or not be accurate when you'd be giving them over to a non-Jewish audience? Sure. So um, let's, those are sort of two questions. So let me, let me take them one at a time. So as you're alluding to right there, there are, uh, there's an idea that it uh, might be usher to teach uh, Torah, particularly Torah Shabbat Peh, 
uh, to non-Jews. That's in the Gemara, recorded in the Poskin, uh, etc. Um, when I first started down this route, you know, I talked to people, Rabbanim, and uh, as as you and I'm sure your audience knows, there's a number of uh, I call it Kulat Heterim positions um, about this. Specifically, um, one invariably, uh, as you mentioned, my class is, of course, open to any student in the law school and also in the theology department. Um, invariably, there are at least some Jews in the class, and by many shitas, that itself um, uh, permits it. Uh, there have been times when I've spoken to non-Jewish groups exclusively, and there we rely on other ideas that what we're doing is uh, only going to help rather than, than hurt. Um, the Jewish cause and, and our ideas and whatnot. So I, you know, since that time, uh, really at the beginning of my path, uh, about 15 years ago or so, um, that's been that's been the approach I've taken. And I think it's the approach that uh, is quite common in many circles today where we have uh, people talking about Torah ideas and Torah concepts between both uh, very broad audiences, mixed audiences, and sometimes wholly non-Jewish audiences. I don't always... Uh, uh, you know, search them out, but when they do come, um, that's that's what I do. Uh, your second question uh, relates to um, you know there are parts of of Torah, whether we think of Tarsh Brachzav or Tarsh Baalpeh, that certainly um, create sharp distinctions between Jews and non-Jews, between men and women, um, which are you know certainly at odds with uh, with the dominant uh, understanding of the way things do and should work uh, today. Um, my view is I look. I'm teaching a what was that, 13-week semester uh, to people who know basically, basically very almost nothing about Jewish law. So invariably, I am selecting. Um, I'm selecting what to what to teach. I don't run to definitely the most difficult uh, issues. Of, let's say Los Chonim, which I know you were you were talking about, right. um, or you know uh, you know Tumas Ha'amamin. Or, or, or things like that, though I, I am learning about Azar right now um, in, in the context outside the class. On the other hand, um, I, I try not to run away from these questions when they do come up. Uh, and, to, and to some degree, uh, I, I feel very confident in, in presenting that these are issues that the Jews themselves have, have discussed. Uh, if we think of something like Gezel Akum, or, you know, I put it in a broader context of Jewish, non-Jewish relationships. I think here it's important to know the historical context in which much of this halacha is created, particularly in Ashkenaz, but not only, um, in, in the relationship between Jews and non-Jews. And of course, uh, you know, there have been shitos and poskim uh, from the days of Rishonim, Ad Bechlal, that have uh, softened a lot of these things, uh, depending on time, place, and context. Yes. So when when I do engage in these questions, I I do talk about uh, these things. So in other words, you know, you do you do walk the line between honesty and giving the sources the way they are, and and you're careful, of course, uh, because clearly, uh, as you said, even if you were going to quote the sheet, let's say of the Rambam, the Gezelakum is Menatayra, but then you have, of course, the sheet of Rashi and the Ram Sanhedrin and others. Who say that it's not, and uh, or, or the rival that it says it's a din and chil Hashem only. So you, you definitely have, uh, I'm sure, a little bit of a, a struggle to make sure that Jewish law is presented in a way that it's very much appreciated by your non-Jewish students. They don't consider us 
uh, you know, racist or, or obscurantist or, or something that, are, that aren't. In, in, in right. The, the, the one thing I'd say is, you know, that's a question, even the, the question you asked, like, you know, it's important to remember who my students are. The question you asked, you come from a place where, like, you know these halachos exist, right? You know that they're in tension with certain understandings. And then, like, how do we resolve them, right? I, I would say that's a, that's a question that a, that a knowledgeable and maybe even a committed person will ask. A, a person that knows nothing about Jewish law, like, why would they even think that that's where you're going to start? <laughs> right. Uh, right, so I'm saying, I think, so, so, so what I try to do in my course, and it's reflected in, in the book that you reference which in some ways comes out of of teaching a class and so here i am you know in front of basically people who know almost nothing about torah at the at the you know i mean some of them they, you know they're jews and christians they know the bible sometimes particularly christians uh you know they may have some sense of you know the the, the life site you know they know there's such a thing as kosher shabbat etc but in any kind of internal sense uh, it's rare at Villanova. We can talk a little bit about when I taught uh, at Harvard and at Penn, but uh, that that these students know very much. So the question there is like, what what do I want to introduce them to? What do I want them to take away from this? Uh, it, it being in their in their you know in their essence as people, but in their essence as law students. Um, and there, you know, my sense has been, and I've thought about it for a long time as I started doing this that. It's more than any particular rule, whether it's in, you know, Choshen Mishpat that, that tracks something we might talk about in law school or something totally different from Hilchah Shabbos or, 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 or Kibbut Avem or Maisa Karbanos for that um, To me, viewing it as a, from the perspective of a law student in a law school, which is where I'm situated, uh, the idea that the study of the law, what we call Talmud Torah, is a fundamental expression of religious practice is an idea that we're all very used to growing up in and around uh, what we'll broadly call yeshiva culture, so much so that we forget how strange it is. Right? No, I'm fairly confident that a fair amount of research on this, no other legal system makes the claim that the study of its law is some higher ideal or purpose that should be at least ideally universally spread amongst the populace. So in other words, when I meet Talmud Torah, you can almost think of three ideas. You can have the idea of Torah Lishma, um, and of Talmud Torah Kineged Kulam um, as, as sort of being, uh, you know, connected, right? The idea of Torah Lishma, Talmud Torah Kineged Kulam, and, you know, like Elu Dvarim Shailen Shiur. Um, and, and those those three ideas really don't appear in any other legal system. And if we think of it in terms of religions, right, very few, certainly not Christianity, the closest is Islam, but it's in a different way, uh, puts emphasis on a kind of universal verisimilitude in, at least a universal male verisimilitude, we can argue about that, um, in the details of the law. So as I always say, you know, I sometimes talk about, like, you know, I don't ask it this way, but I say, listen, when you want to be from, what do you do? Right? Uh, to, to, to a non-Jewish or, or unaffiliated Jewish or a kind of Christian, right? you get all sorts of answers. You pray, you fast, you give charity, you do good deeds. Right? Nobody ever says, you pick up your law textbook and you read the case, the aim of the year of the rest of Isaiah. But, 
you know, said that way, it sounds kind of funny, right? But think about it. That's what we do. If, you know, in the days when we went to bar mitzvahs and in Shever Brachas, right? Someone gives a vort. Sure. And sometimes it could be, you know, something fairly technical. I always joke. I said, listen, I've hung around lawyers and law professors my whole life. I've never been to a wedding where somebody picks up the federal bankruptcy code and says, <laughs> I have talked a good insight here in section 232. <laughs> but if you compare it to the insurance code and section, like that, it, it sounds ridiculous uh, to just say it. And yet we, we do this so much. We don't even notice that it's unusual. So, so, so are, are and to me, I'll just like, that's, that's something that even if you don't know a whole lot of substantive Jewish law and you can't read the Gemara and you can't, right, that's at least as a law student, as a lawyer, as, as, as someone who thinks right, that's at least an interesting question to ask. It's, okay. So my high, what's going on? So do, are, are your non-Jewish students, I'm sure you're an effective, uh, giving, you effectively give these ideas over. Are they excited by, uh, in general? I mean, you've had them in, in, in different venues, in, you said in Harvard and Penn and now in Villanova. Do you find that your non-Jewish students grasp some of this excitement? Of course, they're taking your course for credit and maybe they've heard what sort of wonderful teacher you are. But do you find that they they, they hop, as we say in Yiddish, of what it's about. Do you find that they are some of the better students in your class? So it, it's, it's my job to, uh, listen, do they hop at the level of, of, of you know, someone who's been sweating over a close for a week and finally gets it in the simcha they have? No, they don't. Um, you know, I can't do that, right? I can try to give them like a, what I call a simulacrum, a taste, a, a sort of like, uh, of of what a yeshiva type experience is, and of of sort of again taking back to them being law students, what does it mean to look through not just the legal world but the religious world and the social world through legal lenses? Because I think that's a lot of what the Gemara does. It is that it takes things that the Alma right are not necessarily processed as law. And I write about this in my book quite a bit. And it feeds them through a sort of legal paradigm. Now, that's something that you ought, a good teacher ought to be able to get law students to think about. Because they themselves are entering a world where they're doing more of that than their friends do or than they did before or than their parents do. And then you could tie it to trends in American life, right? That we tend to place a lot of premium on the law and the Supreme Court, right? And, 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 and the law is a sort of part of a cultural conversation. So I try to do things like that. And, and then I also do, we obviously do specific examples. So sometimes I try to take things that are quite similar to what we have in the secular law. And sometimes I try to take things that are quite different. And I'll give a concrete example. Um, Hashava Saveda is similar-ish two ideas that exist in the secular law and certainly in what I call secular political theory. Because the core question of Hashavah Saveda is how much can A demand of B? How much of Shimon's time can Ruvain demand for for his own financial benefit, i.e. to return the Aveda? And of course, the way the Gemara understands it, Hashavah Saveda is not limited to lost baseball gloves. Um, That's a question that every society asks in one way or another, they tend not to ask it through the lens of Hashavah Saveda. O kalech we also talk about kibud 
something that is not thought of as a law, certainly in the American context. You might think of it as a norm, as an ideal, right? But not law. And then we talk about what does it mean to legislate it as law? We look through the Sugi and Kedushin, and we look at some of the stories, right? You also try to pick things that can be accessed in translation. So I translate, and they get the stories, and they're a little weird. And then what would it mean to try to create some sort of code or some sort of set of rules from this? And why are the stories funny? And why are they so extreme? And really, he cried, he was happy that he was an orphan. Does that really make sense? What's going on there? And we look a little bit how that traces down through the postgame. And then, and then I do compare it to some American law. There are some American laws about parents. They have to do with money, about if, if, if you have a lot of money and your parents are impecunious and are in the state, uh, you know, Medicaid roles in the nursing home, can the state come after you uh, for it, right? So that's, you know, we talk about those kinds of questions. What, what the law talks about, what the halacha talks about, what it doesn't talk about, what's on the table, what's off the table. Uh, what c- comes into sharper relief when you view things through a legal lens? And what sorts of things kind of fall to the wayside when you view things through legal lens? What's the role of agadita? They might not have a thick understanding of halacha and agada, but you can give somebody a, in uh, uh, the kibbutz Aveim, both the kibbutz Aveim and the Hashem uh, Shavedes for this, and they can see that there's like different types of discussions. And 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 again, in law school, we have lots of legal discussions. We don't really have a parallel to agadita. What's that doing? How's that filling it in? So those are the types of issues I tend uh, to focus on to introduce them to. You know, if they know anything, they know that Jews, and particularly Orthodox Jews, have lots of rules and are very, uh, you know, intense about it. That's what the Jews know. The the Christians tend to have a sense from their reading of, of the Gospels and some of the Christian texts. Also, that Jews are very obsessed with law, but then in, in more negative kind of things. Yes, the, 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 like the Pharisees, yes. They see us. The Pharisees, as... sure, of course. Um, so I kind of start from there and and then we try to go in certain places and of course a little bit depends on what's going on in the world uh you know i do different sugyas based on what hits me what i see going on in the world what i think will have an interesting hook i tend not to be too you know off the headlines but maybe you know at least the types of things that resonate well um, it, 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 I, I was obviously villanova is very uh, lucky to have you i know you've been there for about 15 years as you said and I think you mentioned to me in a different in the previous conversation that they didn't even really have a Jewish law chair until you came, right? So you were actually their first uh, teacher of Jewish law, and uh, you know it might have been, I guess, the bone uh, to throw to you. I'm sure they're happy about it, but of course you also teach uh, contract law, correct? Which uh, yes. insurance law, and uh, we probably I'm just guessing that you probably have more students in those other classes than you do have in your Jewish law course, right? That's absolutely true. So yeah. every every spring I teach uh, 70 or 80 students contracts. Uh, I teach about 30, 35 students insurance law. And then the Jewish law class is a seminar. It's, you know, capped at 12. So it's, you know. That's great. And, that's... And, and, and it's a very different type of experience. Of I always I always say that's about the perfect size for a shear. 12 right. students is the perfect size. Not too small and not too big. But you right, haven't. So nobody, nobody has to take the class um, now. In terms of the law school, just to just to you know, I was hired. Um, you know, and it was clear that that I think you know, Villanova is a Catholic school, as you mentioned. Uh, certainly, at that time, there was a sense that a Catholic school should be interested uh, in law and religion across a number of dimensions, uh, and uh, and I was hired in that uh, capacity. Of course, 
as you know, it's not irrelevant that I teach what we'll call secular law topics. I don't think I would have been hired if I couldn't. Um, uh, and then a few years ago, I think in recognition of, of my work, they, uh, thank God they gave me a, a chair, which, um, you know, which, which, which represents an institutional commitment uh, to, to, to the topic. And to say that, listen, maybe not every school, but, but you know, if you look at, the, at the, the length and breadth of the American Legal Academy, uh, it probably makes sense that there should be a couple people with some expertise in Jewish law who, with, I would say, you know, what we might call, uh, who are switch hitters, right? Expertise yes. in Jewish law, but also can, can speak the language of the, you know, the, the law school vernacular and usefully translate uh, between those two. Well, you're, you're not going to get any criticism from me, uh, Professor, because uh, obviously what, what crops up, maybe not Villanova, of course, we have some of the most ridiculous uh, classes in the world cropping up in academia. I'm happy that there is a, uh, it's ensconced in, 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 a, in a respectful manner. Uh, so I, I guess what I'm hearing from you is that it is you work hard to make sure it's effective. Your non-Jewish students, you believe, do get a sense of, of, of the glory and the interesting aspect of who we are. Let's talk about your Jewish students. Let's talk about the students that you have. Um, and you, you mentioned before that you've, you taught in, in, in Penn, or I mentioned at Penn and in Harvard. Talk about how your Jewish students take being in this environment where they are studying things. For example, I'm sure if they're used doing Ashava Sabed, it's something they probably did in sixth grade when they did Elu Matthias. Yet now they're studying it not only from you, in a, but they're also studying it as part of a group, as part of a, a group that meshes sure. together. Sure. So I, I'll, I'll just modify one word. I think for these purposes, you know, the really the relevant distinction is not Jewish, non-Jewish, but Orthodox Jewish students versus other because a lot of the students I have at Villanova who are Jewish are culturally Jewish to one degree or another but in terms of their I mean they they tend to know more some of them have heard of the word Mishnah although many of them haven't uh very few have heard of the word Gemara by the time you say something like Rishonim they have no idea or Shulchan Aruch, they have no idea what you're talking about so in terms of their baseline knowledge, there's a fair amount of consistency there. As you mentioned, when I taught at Harvard and at Penn, it was a very different dynamic because you had general law students, both Jewish and not. Um, and then you had some students, some, some culturally Jewish students with more knowledge. Uh, but then you did have in both uh, places, um, yeshiva, uh, either day school, you know, modern Orthodox day school educated yeshiva students and, um, a number of, uh, what we'll call Haredi, um, yeshiva students who, who, for whom being at a law school is really their first time out of the, uh, the firm bubble, uh, if you will. And, and those students are, of course, quite different. I would say as a teacher, it's a challenge to, 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 to in one class, teach, you know, somebody who, who's, who's not Jewish, who's never heard of the word Mishnah, and somebody who has been in Yeshiva in Lakewood for, 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 for 10 years. Um, when I taught at Harvard, I actually divided the course into those basically with a rabbinic Hebrew prerequisite and those without. Uh, and we had a group, both of them were great, they were amazing students, not surprisingly, at Harvard Law School. Uh, at Penn, we had, to, we had to do it all together, but um, you, you pick up some tricks, so you, you make the yeshiva bacher explain what Tosfot is saying to the person who doesn't know what Tosfot is. And they have a hard time because they immediately want to use their fingers and their thumbs and their Yiddish. And I, I can't do any of that. Now, I actually find this a valuable exercise. And this, this maybe you know, points to some deeper issues. 
uh, and I'll tell you my hashkafa, and you know your listeners will decide uh, whether it's Avicorsis or not. But I think that when you really understand something, you can explain it right to somebody who doesn't know anything about it. And I would go more than that. I would say to really understand, I'll tell you what I think is the problem with some Torah education. And because it's locked within its terminological and conceptual circle, we'll call that the language of the base medrash. And that's wonderful. But what happens when you close the Gemara and you leave the base medrash and now you're standing on the street corner and you're not part of that terminological circle at that moment? So then what can you take with you that actually impacts the, the Gavra as you are outside of the circle of concepts and texts that you speak in the base medrash. One of the things I believe and has been motivating my writing on Jewish law for, for a long time, and my thinking about it for longer, is to say, if we do this right, we ought to be able to explain it in a way that doesn't, that, that, that speaks to us as people and that speaks to us maybe as a society, even if we're outside the base measure. So because I raised the example a second ago, uh, I'll come back to it. Hashava Saveda. So I think there's an avla that happens with Hashava Saveda. I mean, there's a very good thing, right? As you said, we teach it to, it's, it's often taught to young children as one of their first exposures to Mishnah and then Gemara. And there's great reasons to do that. But when you do that, invariably, the Rebbe, smartly, given who he's talking to, is going to say that, what do you lose? You lose a ball, you lose a glove, you lose an iPhone, you know, you lose things that, you know, kids have, and then, you know, it's like a nice mitzvah, right? But it, 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 I think, stays at the realm of cute. But then, if you think about it, I think in a more sophisticated way, you say, listen, this is actually a fascinating question. Because it's asking one of the core questions of what we may call legal theory or political philosophy, depending on which way you come to it, which is, what are A's responsibilities to be in a society? To what degree can A demand the time, the effort, the money of B to aid A's financial, uh, financial uh, needs? And correlatively, when does B get to say, in the language of the Gemara, Shalom Kodem? Now, when you say it like that, you're like, oh, oh, this isn't about baseball clubs. I mean, it might also be about baseball clubs, right? And especially because the Brisa that quoted in the Gemara expands it, right, to anything that has a, that, that is a chasaran kiss, right? The Shavasaveda, right, includes the rivers come, the, uh, you know, that the, the flood is coming. Do I have to help you wall off your, uh, your land? Right? If you're lost in the way, do I have to allow you to trespass over my land? So now all of a sudden we are implicating a whole bunch of questions that, by the way, law school is about and our political discourse is about. And I would say that a, a way to teach it, now we can leave the law school for a second, although, you know, I think they're connected. That the way to teach it is to say that, no, the Sugi of Hashem Sabeda engages in those questions, engages in property rights and their centrality, engages in my ability to disclaim responsibility for others versus my obligation towards others. And that you don't need to be a grace and a maven to understand immediately how that implicates thousands of decisions we make in our individual lives and our collective lives. How does the Gemara balance? How do Chazal and the Rishon and the Post can balance that question about when 
Right, because otherwise what? I have to run around all day looking for people in trouble to help them out. Can't be. Right, how do we, so, so I think framed that way, this becomes supremely important. And I would add, now it's ole al shulchan atzibur, so to speak. In other words, now it's part of what, what we'd call the public discourse, whether you know how to read the ksos or not. It's, of course, in the job of those who do to say, what does our tradition say to these questions? To me, that is learning at its deepest. It's fun. It was to take yeshiva bachers who have the skills and the knowledge and the background and to bring them along and to have them fight and argue with you, but to show that, look, this is what we're talking about. These are the stakes. The stakes are high here. They're not just, you know, some nafkamina that like whatever makes sense in sheer and then the moment you walk out, whatever. So so it sounds like throughout in, in, in all the stations that you've been, it sounds, I would assume, based on the way you're saying and the passion with which you're conveying it, that the yeshiva bochrim or whoever it was that were in those courses and these classes probably came out learning it in ways they had never learned it before. And I hope they were probably appreciative. And maybe this really argues, uh, Professor, for, um, as you said, changes within the way things are being learned in general. Maybe it's the same way uh, the, the, the Avni Nezer used to send people to Rav Chaim Brisker uh, to get a perspective of how to understand a sugi in a different way. It might make sense for select students to actually spend a little bit of time uh, learning things from a scholarly, uh, in a scholarly way in a college type of situation. And as you said, even in a way where you have to be masberate to know it so well that you have to be masbert even to someone who's isn't just your weaker harusa, but someone who is actually uh, not, not Jewish at all. With totally different assumptions. Yeah, that that's what I believe. So I, I will tell you when I think I think the the word that you hit there is right. Select. You know, I, I would never think to impose this on everybody because if 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 that's not where the person is and whatnot, um, it's not going to help. But I think there is a. a, a there is a cadre of, of yeshiva students. What percentage I let the mechanchim figure out, who I think would benefit from it. You know, I, I, when I, when I taught it at Harvard, we had, we, you know, I, I started with the students. We did topics in business law. We did a bunch of different things. But, you know, I started with the students. I said, listen, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to keep this real simple. We're just going to start with the Mishnah. And it's Mishnah in the ninth paragraph of Akama. Uh, about uh, right that, that the guy gives it to the dyer right uh, don't say in semer latzaba the kedachos right and he burns it in the pot so the gemara the mishnah says no simro demet simro you have to give him the uh, the, uh, the 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 cost of the of of the wool and then the mishnah continues sabakar right what if you do it poorly so it says and then the Gemara of the last case, or the wrong color. So Rameir says, no, it's a different That was a different calculation. And I said, listen, guys, it's just a Mishnah. So just tell me, what is the theory and the measure of damages in this Mishnah? In other words, I said, just apply your American law contract import terminology to this Mishnah. How could that be hard? You guys all. Harvard Law students, y'all ace contracts. It's a Mishnah, right? And they laughed at me like, this is what we're here for? And of course, after an hour, they couldn't do it. Or they, 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 the, the discussion led them to the complexity of trying to figure out 
hmm, what are actually the Mishnah's ambient categories? What is its theory? Is this a contract? Is this a tort? What are the measure of damages? And once we start talking that language, they all of a sudden, two things happen, ideally. You start, A, understanding the Mishnah better. B, when you then see the Machlokas between Rashi and Tosos there, and then the Rishonim and the Achron, you see that they are, in their terms, grappling with these questions. And what here I find that the secular law does is it provides a kind of conceptual taxonomy to like help identify what the issues are. And you then come to the Sugidishmeitzen and you can understand the, the, like the stakes of the debates between, you know, what could seem very technical as, 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 as very much formative of it. So I find it as just a sort of advanced lumbus. I am not smart enough to, I would say maybe some, some Tamide Chachamim, some Rashi Yeshiva, whatnot, can intuit, you know, the meta categories themselves. I'm certainly not smart enough. What I find useful is to learn the sugya, get a sense of like what's going on, then go to the secular literature that talks about the, the concepts at issue and the stakes of the concepts at issue, and then armed with that knowledge, go back to the sugya and see whether certain moves that didn't make sense, you didn't understand the relevance of before, what they're after. Oh, it's definitely a, uh, a, a practical uh, way to get a conception of things which do seem on the surface strange. I, I, I would just add that I think part of what Rav Chaim and Rav Shimon, more, more so than Rav Chaim, and Rav Hamil, who was one of Rav Shimon's prime students, part of what they were trying to do was to create new terminology, as you would call taxonomy, to create new ter- types of terminology, which actually allowed the fruition of, of ideas and to, to show the, the, coral, the corollary uh, of, of what's really going on. So I think that it has been done before, but as you're saying, why not use what's available, especially since it's already been articulated so well. That's right. So I think Rav Shimon and, and Rav Amiel um, definitely do that in their way. I'm certainly not that smart. <laughs> but but I can read a law review article that can make me sound smart. <laughs> I understand. You know, one thing that we, we haven't talked about, and we were sort of running out of time here, and I do want you to, to, to discuss it, and it's, it's really related to exactly what we're talking about. When I was growing up, there, you didn't have that. You didn't have yeshivish fellows that would be able to get into law school, that were going to pursue a, a legal career, that would become from lawyers. It was a very, it was very rare. If you needed a lawyer, it would probably be somebody uh, who was a stately gentleman who happened to have a sympathy towards religion. But this that you have been, the people you've been teaching, the yeshivish chevra are really part of something bigger. It's not just the ones that are going to law school, the ones that are going to colleges all over the country, the ones that are involved in, in many activities, not in the way Shamshan Fulhirsch Hirsch uh, described it, but I think more similar to something which you wrote about. Uh, and it was something that was sent to me by friends of mine, your Facebook post about the new modern yeshiva world, the yeshivish modern people who are modern in a way, in terms of what they can get done, but totally yeshivish. And you spoke about this in a, in, in a post about how you saw they were able to pull off the incredible Siyam Ashas that uh, it's happened so many eons ago, <laughs> back in January 1st. Uh, and, and, and there was an energy that you uh, commented upon, uh, the energy of, 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 of a new type of, a new type of religious Jew, 
who is able to do stuff uh, and, and, and in a way be part of the society and yet get done things which hadn't been done before. Um, so do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that, about your impression? Sure, sure. And it's, it's connected, as you know. So one of the changes I've seen in the, in the Orthodox world of the last, you know, 30 years or so, since I'm old enough to pay attention, um, is, is exactly this, this emergence of a community. I think with stronger anchors in America than in Israel, for all sorts of reasons that probably we could not talk about, but your listeners don't have their own views on, um, which I think is not neither modern Orthodox nor Haredi, and maybe to distinguishing Haredi and Yeshivish, but some mix of the two. Like you said, you now have, you know, mainly men, although not only, um, you know, but guys who are, you know, post Lakewood Kolo, you know, who wear their jackets and hats to davening, who are in Harvard Law School or Columbia, and Fordham has many, many, many such students, and, and all places all over the country. And on the one hand, like you said, if, if we go back 30 years and you say, well, there's a from Jew, but he's a lawyer or a doctor or this, you say, oh, you know, he's modern Orthodox, right? Because, because that's what it meant. The access to those educational and professional opportunities was almost wrapped up in, 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 in that. Today, that's not true at all. These people, um, are, are definitely in some ways, you know, like I said, well, did they go to college? Well, sort of. Do they have a profession? Yeah. Are they, we could go over, are they Zionist in a certain way? Uh, so then how are they not modern Orthodox? Well, that just tells you that your categories aren't very good. Uh, so, so there has been this emergence of what I would call the Agudabala busts, the black hat lawyer, the black hat doctor, um, and, and not only those professions, of course, who on the one hand, um, I think defied their rebellion's expectations. And this is what I wrote about in the context of, uh, of Dafyomi, you know, that the, the rebellion, and I'm, being a little cartoonish in my uh, description, but but the you know the the Rashi yeshivas would say, listen, if you leave the yeshiva, you're never going to learn again. You're not going to be firm. You're going to be an ice fire. If you're going to assimilate into either you know at best modern orthodoxy and at worst you know just Americanism, that clearly is not what's going on. Uh, they said they'd stop learning, and I said, well, I doubt many of these people learn the Iyun, you know, with the Ksais and the Reb Chaims the way they did or at least should have in yeshiva. But, you know, the Dafyomi is really the province of this sort of black hat balabas. I think that's its core audience. It has other audiences, which is interesting, but that's certainly its core audience. And that's the audience that shows up to the Siamashas and that makes it what it is. So it's this fascinating mix. And I said, just think of the event, right? The amount of, um, you know, political connections, uh, um, and, and just kind of real world know-how it takes to pull off such an event is not something that I think that, you know, that a Haredi community that's very closed and insular could pull off. It just, that event itself, forget about what it represents, shows a, a, a geschickness with this world and with how, you know, power and politics and money and, and different people can kind of come together. That is, that is not, that is very much the high Alma and very much not the sort of, you know, uh, culture of, 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 of yeshiva people that, that only do that. On the other hand, um, you know, they, it would thought to be impossible that, that this mix would happen. I think, like I wrote there, I think both, so to speak, on the right and on the left, on the left people would have both assumed that as soon as you step out of that bubble, 
uh, you to assimilate. And what happened is they reinvented what it means to be a lawyer, what it means to be a doctor, what it means to be a balabas in like the five towns or you know, certain parts of New Jersey or wherever it is. Uh, they sort of redefined and redefined a category that didn't exist of something that is sort of draws a lot of its imagery and inspiration from the Haredi world in some sense draws a lot of its functionality from the more modern Orthodox world and creates something that is, that is really in between. And I think a fascinating development. So when, when, when you say, ah, oh, right. I think 30 years you say, ah, oh, if a yeshiva kid's in Harvard, well then he's not a yeshiva kid anymore. And, and, and it's true that you don't have 18 year olds and yeshiva guys hanging out in the quads at Harvard, you know, doing all the things that we typically associate with that. no, they're older, they're married, they don't live on campus, they're a little more nechas v'yaitza. So they've redefined that experience, but they've wrapped it around uh, their own identities. And like you said, there's now many, many lawyers um, working in all sorts of areas of, of law who, you know, they're partners in white true law firms who put on a hat for mincha. I think something that would have been both to the, 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 the Rosh Yeshiva and to the partner at the white true law firm 30 years ago, just impossible to understand. And here we are. So, but, but I would just add one aspect here just to wrap this up. And I think it, it feeds into the significance of, of your Jewish edu- educating them. Because I think that the same type of vibrancy and energy and creativity and gumption that got the Siamashas done is also the type of thing to get many things done not only as good functioning Balabatim and contributors, but things that'll help the Jewish community in the future in a way that doesn't seem like a bunch of saber rattling, like some of the recent events. I don't want to go into that, but we don't have enough time for that. But I think people who, who understand, who have a real, a, a measure and a sense of the society, who aren't embarrassed about who they are, who, who also have a very heady respect for how that society works, for, for its laws, and, and can actually contribute in a way where they're not marginal, where they're part of it, where they're insulated in, in, because of their own ideals, but are able to be effective. What I'm going to say is I actually, as I told you last night, I'm not a big fan of the whole CMHS deal, but maybe that's a sign of the type of accomplishments this new modern yeshiva person might be able to pull off. And the ones that are coming out of your classes, the ones that are coming out of med school, like Dr. Glatt, and others who are now heroes, I think, on the scene, I think we, we finally have a type of integration which doesn't have the type of tension and, 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 and watered-down aspect that previous generations had. So maybe that's, a, maybe that's all a good sign of things I, to I come. I think that's right. And, 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 and I think your, your, your observation of Dr. Glad, again, is a good one because if we were to describe him, you know, uh, in the 1970s, right, you, you would assume that, that this is someone who is what we would call, you know, very modern Orthodox, right? Because, and of course, that's not true at all. Yeah, so I, I think that that is, to me, certainly within Orthodoxy, one of the most interesting, American Orthodoxy, one of the most interesting developments of the, the, the kind of, you know, we always talk about, and I, I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but a little bit seriously, right? There's a way in which people always talk about the move to the right, certainly the modern Orthodox move to the right, but there's a certain way of the Haredi move to the left, Um in that, you know, things that were once taboo and verboten, whether we talk about state of Israel, secular, uh, secular studies, uh, a certain form of integrationism, uh, are now there. But of course, they're not exactly the way they were, right? They become, I, I think that's the big point here, that 
each of these institutions and identities become transformed as they are inhabited by different types of people. Uh, and so now what it means to be a law partner is different. It doesn't mean that you have to go play golf uh, with the guy on Shabbos. But I think 30 years ago, it absolutely meant that. In mail, it was impossible to be a Fermiyad and a partner at Sullivan Cromwell. But this is what I'm saying. So it's both the, the, the from society has changed, but, but in its changing, it is also changing the definitions of what does it mean? Who goes to Harvard Law School? Who is a partner at Sullivan Cromwell? Who is a department head at, at, a, at a research uh, lab or whatnot? Um, and, and those, I think, are, are fascinating, fascinating changes. And, and many of them, I agree with you, uh, for the better. So, so thanks for being on the vanguard, really, of what we hope is really going well, to I, I, just Just to be clear to your listeners, I am not part of this community. Um, I understand, but you no, are. I know you do, but, but, but you know, I'm, I'm an observer of it, but I just want to put the cards there. You know, there's many <laughs> reasons why I could not live in that world, but I can, I can take stock of it and, 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 and you know, certainly around the theme of Shah celebrated successes. Maybe another time we'll talk about my, my, my criticisms. Yeah, well, like I said, I think as, as, as in your role of teaching and this challenge that I think you've met so magnificently, I think you're going to be able to actually usher in, uh, along with your very excited non-Jewish friends, uh, non-Jewish students, but those uh, from yeshiva type modern clever in a way that I think will be a big Kiddush Hashem to the world. So thank you again, uh, Dr. Seyman, for giving us so generously of your time. And hopefully we will. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.